It's all right. I'll just cut it off. You can still ask the question. <laughs> Did Oreos ever have a D? No. They just skipped. Okay. But they were D. They to, I think yeah. they used to be dairy. Cool. Okay. Welcome, everybody. Uh, this is session number five in the Anhalacha class. Today, we're getting into more practical considerations. So we've spent the first four weeks thinking in general terms about the methodology of halacha. Um, last week in particular, um, I laid out a way to read all halachic texts um, uh, based on three different sources of authority. That's normative authority, what people do in reality. <coughs> the second is formal authority. That is, what are the limitations of the texts that I'm using and what are considered proper arguments given the, the kind of text that I'm dealing with, that I'm writing or reading. Um, and the third is values, uh, societal values, Jewish values, all kinds of values. Um, this is an, one of those exa an example of a situation where these sources can come up. I mean, it's an important one. I think it's actually one of the sources that comes up quite a bit. A lot of times when people talk about differences between like conservative prayer, orthodox prayer, shayacharasha, <coughs> they're often thinking about a few very specific halakha topics, which then get kind of ballooned into like larger ideological considerations. Um, but like shul spaces are really important. The way people feel about shul has like huge impact on the way they feel about community. Um, so today we're looking at one topic in particular relating to women in prayer. Um, that is, can women count in a minyan? <coughs> and I decided to start out with, I think, what is a more difficult question, and we'll move back to an, what's an easier question next week, which is, can women lead services? Um, can women count in minyan? Um, what I'd like to do tonight is go through some sources with you. Um, none of these sources, just to like spoil everything, say anything to the effect of more than one woman can count in minyan. It's a possibility that one woman can. Um, it's possible that one of the sources can be read to say that you can have a minyan of 10 people, but it's only one possibility. But basically none of them say that women can count in a minyan uh, on a larger scale. We're going to try to read these in terms of this norms, forms, and values approach. Um, we're then going to try to, I think, read through these, some try to get some understanding of what the relationship is between women and gender in general. Um, sorry, women and gender. I meant to say minion and gender. Please correct me if I do that. Um, minion, just to remind you, so minion is understood to be a group of 10 men, adult men. That's how nowadays it's in Orthodox communities um, it is normatively understood. Um, and the minyan's important for prayer spaces, but it's also important for other things as well, and that's going to come up um, in the future. So we're going to look at some, to try to understand what the relationship is, and if there is an essential relationship, an essential relationship between minyan and gender. Um, we're then going to look at when this idea that a minyan is not just 10, but 10 men develops, um, and it is actually, I think you'll be maybe surprised to hear that it is not something that develops um, at the very beginning of the, of the notion of minyan. Um, and then we're going to see kind of two medieval and <coughs> early modern perspectives on why it is that women cannot be part of minyan. One of those perspectives seems to suggest that women, in theory, could be part of a minyan, meaning that there's nothing essentially wrong or, or diminished about women that they cannot be part of a minyan, but rather the concern is a practical one that a woman, for a woman to count a minyan is in some ways inappropriate, um, unseemly, and we'll have to understand what that means. The other perspective is more essential in that it seems to suggest not that in a practical sense that women can't count a minyan, but actually like, there is some essential reason why women cannot be part of a minyan. I think that's going to be something that's more difficult to approach. Um, 
we're then going to try to understand how to kind of take each of those two perspectives in these later medieval sources um, and to reconcile them with the way we live today, which is to say that we live in a society where men and women are both equal parts of our community, are both equally empowered, or at least aspire to be equally empowered. We aspire that men and women are equally empowered in our society. Um, that's the game plan. Now, why is this a difficult topic? Well, for one thing, basically none of the sources that we're looking at tonight directly support anything I'm about to say. Um, if you were simply looking for a black letter ruling, you're not going to find it in these sources. Um, that's one thing that makes it difficult. Um, furthermore, it's difficult because there's also no precedent. There's no, uh, and certainly in the Orthodox community, there's no precedent for women um, counting in Minyan in large, in large capacities. Um, so as a result, when we decide that women are part of Minyan, we are deciding something which has not existed before in Jewish history. And I think that is a, a scary thing to imagine, a scary thing to think about. Um, and I kind of want to outline at the beginning, though, why I think that it's worthwhile going through the text in the way that we're going through them. Um, because there, there are quite a few other approaches. One approach, as I alluded to, is that you can say, and by the way, interrupting at any point in time, um, one approach is to say that just look at the black letter law, just look at what the Shulchan Aruch says, for example. Shulchan Aruch says it has to be 10 adult men. And that should be the end of the story. Um, I'm not sure that this works entirely, partially because of something we looked at in the previous week, which is that the Shulchan Aruch or any individual text cannot possibly represent the totality of positions that exist in Jewish law. You always have to look at the broader pr perspective. And I think you already have medieval voices telling you, like, you can't just look at the Shulchan Aruch. You have to look at the broader picture. Um, now you might say, the broader picture doesn't look so bright as well. Um, there, I think you have to use a different kind of hermeneutic, a different kind of interpretation. Uh, this, is the va this is the norms, forms, and values perspective which we're going to get to. However, there are other ways of looking at, uh, of being kind of permissive on the issue. Um, in the conservative movement, for example, uh, there's a tshuva by Rabbi David Golinkin, um, who suggests, um, based on a number of the sources that we're going to look at, that there is at least some precedent from the Talmud that women can count a minyan. And so what he does, basically, is he takes the Talmudic sources that support this, as well as one manuscript of the Rambam, which also seems to support it, and says, look, I have evidence. That's all I need. And they can ignore like the vast numbers of other rabbis who say otherwise, because I just need some support. Um, that I think um, might do the job in, uh, in terms of like giving you some kind of answer. I don't know that it helps you understand your tradition. I think it actually alienates you from most of the tradition. You still end up with like the vast majority of rabbis saying something which you don't understand and seems, um, you know, misogynistic perhaps, it seems patriarchal, it certainly is difficult to relate to. So part of the project I think tonight is not just to kind of get to a place where we can say that women can count dominion, but also to feel comfortable with all of the sources that we're looking at and not to think like these are just sources that I don't know what to do with this, whatever. Um, the last approach which we're not gonna take is to say that, you know, we acknowledge that there are sources out there that, you know, in the past 2000 years, um, all rabbis have said that women cannot count a minyan in various capacities, that women are not empowered in minyan, but that's different now, <clears throat> and I don't, need to, I don't need to even look at the sources. I can just ignore all the sources and say, well, it's different today. But that I also don't think works partially because um, it again ignores the tradition. Uh, it again kind of alienates us from our past, but also because I, I would put forward that some of the sources that we're looking at, even if they don't um, 
even if their uh, ultimate ruling is not um, something which we would want to practice today, um, still provides us with some insight in the way the rabbis are thinking about the relationship between women and minyan. Um, and that relationship is not entirely negative. Um, so there is what to look at. Okay. That being said, um, let's get into the sources. But you had a question first. Yeah. I mean, more of just in terms of thinking about this from a norms perspective, it seems like part of the issue is not just that it's the norm in the Orthodox world that women don't count the minion, but that almost seems like it's becoming the litmus test for whether you're Orthodox or not. Like you can imagine the Orthodox community saying, like, you're Orthodox as long as you keep Kolisha, or as long as you, you know, don't eat hot dairy out. It's not that. It's like as long as you like don't. And I've heard of rabbinical schools, you know. You, you can you can come study with us as long as you never daven, you know, without machitza, with women counting the minion. Okay. So and therefore, just to and, Right, and therefore that, like, strengthens the norm in a way that makes it kind of harder to break down, I think. Right. When you're, in reality, it definitely yeah. strengthens it. Um, and the question about there being this kind of separate layer of not just not just making um, a legal argument work from a halakhic perspective, but from an orthodox halakhic perspective, um, is definitely conversation, I think, like, thinking about, like, what does it mean to, what is, what is orthodox identity in that, and are there different rules for orthodox legal interpretation, I think is, like, a worthwhile question asking. Um, for this class, I think we're going to try to stay away from denominational considerations and simply think about halakha as such. It might be a naive thing to say, but <laughs> that's what I'm going to say. Um, okay. So what is a minyan? Let's look at the sources. The notion of minyan as being ten people, or the notion of ten people being in some way significant shows up quite early. Um, so can I have a volunteer to read source number one in either Hebrew or English? It's from the book of Ruth in the Torah. I'll read. Okay, <clears throat> um, I'll just do it in English, I guess. Um, now Boaz went up to the gate and sat him down there, and behold, the near kinsman of whom Boaz spoke came by, unto whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here, and they sat down. Great. So what's the point of having ten people sit with him in this particular situation? For those of you who know the story more broadly. So Boaz is trying to um, make, he's trying to make a legal enactment. He's trying to change like, the status of leveret marriage so that he is the one who ends up taking care of Ruth, um, as well as her property. And so this requires, it seems, some kind of council of 10 people. This is one of the earliest sources we have that refers to this notion about 10 people as being a legally significant number. Um, the starting point for our discussion in terms of tefillah, not in terms of law, but in terms of tefillah specifically, is the next source. Um, Shana, do you want to read? Sure. <coughs> We do not responsibly recite the Shema, nor have a communal prayer leader, nor offer the priestly blessing, nor read the Torah, nor read from the prophets, nor perform the standing, sitting ritual for the dead, nor say the blessing of the mourners, nor the formal comforting the mourners, nor recite the wedding blessings, nor say Zimun with the name in a group of fewer than ten. And when redeeming land, we require nine and a Kohen, and so too with redeeming people. Okay. Now, what's your sense of this? Why, why is the number 10 significant for these, um, these kind of rituals? It seems like they're rituals that involve, like, you know, reading something to the public or the public comforting a mourner or whatever. It's like the 
clear distinction between the community and you know, an individual. Great. So 10 seems to be the kind of the, threat, the threshold at which a group of people can think about itself as not simply being individuals, but as being representatives of the community. Um, I would also add that there seems to be some way in which 10 people can um, represent a relationship with God that is different from an individual relationship with God. Um, and I think this is borne out both in that communal prayer can happen in a group of 10, and also towards the end that it says, um, nor say a zimun with the name. That means like when you say a, um, when you say Berkat Amazon, and you say, you know, Baruch Elokeinu Shachal Nemeshelo, when you add Elokeinu into that, um, you're adding God's name because there's a group of 10 there. Um, now, what's striking about this, and as we look at the first few sources, we'll see, is that it does not say 10 men. It says 10. Now, we have to kind of wonder, so why doesn't it say 10 men? Um, why is it left ambiguous whether this 10 uh, refers to men, women, slaves, children? What do you think is the, uh, the reason that it simply says 10 here? There's no need to say men, it was just an assumption. All right, so one way is simply to say that the Mishnah, Mishnah loves being concise, and in a society in which it is assumed that the men are the ones participating in these rituals, there's no need to go on and say that it refers to, um, <coughs> it refers to 10 men specifically. Um, now, that might be true, um, it still doesn't answer, does it refer to adult men, does it refer to slaves, meaning like there are a number of liminal groups which may or may not be suggested. Um, and so we think from the Mishnah itself, it's, it's possible that it is thinking about only a specific subgroup. Um, it's possible that it doesn't have a particular idea in mind, it's simply thinking about 10, and most of the time it understands 10 to be men that are adults and free, um, but doesn't need to specify it. Um, but it, it is left somewhat vague. Um, and it's going to be left vague for several centuries, as we'll see. Um, so the, the next group of sources um, are all interested in understanding where this number 10 comes from, which is something which, as thus far, we have not looked at at all. So the third source, Mishnah Sanhedrin. Um, yeah, do you want to read this one? Sure. Uh, Great. Um, so there is a, a link made between these two verses, and we're going to see this link made with the word Eida, a, a group, a congregation, uh, made several times over, that the link between these two verses suggests that the word Eida means is a stand-in for ten. Why? Because there is one famous instance in the Torah in which we know that Eida is specifically ten, and that case is... Disgusting. The Meraglim. The Meraglim, the spies. Um, there are ten evil spies, and they are referred to as an Eida. Um, now, this is important to think about as well as we go further, which is, it's important to think about the fact that the base text for Minyan is based on the word Eida, referring to not upstanding individuals in society, but actually Rishayim, actually bad guys. Um, 
that's important to think about um, in terms of trying to understand how far the Gemara is, or the Gemara or the Mishnah in this case, is trying to draw the analogy between this verse Eta um, and the other verse Eta that it will refer to elsewhere. Because you can draw all kinds of analogies. You can say, well, it refers to men. You could also say it refers to wicked men. Only wicked men can make a Bimiyam, which I think we would not think is the case. You could say it refers to uh, men who are you know, representatives of their communities, men who are uh, 30, not bar mitzvah or whatever else. Um, so we have to be careful, and I think, like, unless we know otherwise, we should like be minimalist about this. Don't assume that the that the mission is trying to tell us more than it simply says. So A does just ten. Yeah. This is just out of curiosity because I realize it's not that important. But mm -hmm. what about the extra three members of the smaller Sanhedrin? Yeah, I don't remember exactly. Okay, what the, I guess maybe because that. that's what makes a vape team. I don't know. Three, maybe. Yeah. That's my. That was my guess. I was also wondering. <laughs> they yeah, just, they just kind of dropped off. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the next two sources that we're looking at, I think it's a good Maybe question. Maybe because A dies three letters. <laughs> That's probably yeah. um, So we have two sources here that speak specifically about um, Eda in terms of Minyan. And not just Minyan, but Devarshi uh, Bikidusha, which is a phrase that's going to come up over and over again. Devarshi Bikidusha is those elements of Tefillah which are deemed to be important enough or holy enough or godly enough that it requires a quorum of 10 um, in order for those things to be said. Um, so that's the discussion here in the Palestinian <coughs> Talmud, even though it doesn't say that here in the source. Um, so this is number four. Uh, Josh, do you want to read this? Sure. Said Rav Simon, it says here in the midst, toch, and it says there, and B'nai Yisrael came to get grain in the midst of those coming. Just as toch there signifies 10, so here too it is 10. Said to him, Rav Yossi ben Rav Bun, if you derive it from Toch, there will be too many. Rather, it says here B'nai Yisrael, and it says there B'nai Yisrael. Just as there refers to ten, so here too it refers to ten. Um, great. So we're starting to see the second, um, the second kind of uh, biblical reference that is going to come up, which is this word Toch, as referring to ten. Um, and so here, there's actually uh, there's going to be a double a double movement that's made. Uh, there's reference to Toch and um, in the next verse, you'll see the word tov is also connected to the word eda. Um, but here again, you see this reference to ten, and the reference is made without specifying masculine and feminine. It's simply ten. Um, so this continues to source number five, which is, I think, probably one of the most important sources we have um, for, uh, for discussion of Minyan. Marcel, um, do you want to read this? Yeah. How do we know this? Said Reb Chiyya ben Abba said... Rev. Yohanan, the verse says, and I will be sanctified in the midst of the children of Israel. Any Davarsha shall not be said with fewer, fewer than ten. What suggests this? Rav Chiyya taught in uh, Baraita, we derive it from the double usage of myths. It says here, and I will be sanctified in the midst of the children of Israel, and it says there, separate, separate yourself, yourselves from the myths of this congregation. And then we derive it from the double usage of congregation. It says there, how long must I suffer this evil congregation? Just as there it refers to 10. So here too, it refers to 10. Great. So um, is, is, is the movement here uh, clear? So we have, three, we have three verses that are being discussed, and there's two of them have toch, two of them have eita, and so we make this linkage between the word toch um, in terms of kedusha. Um, in terms of 
what you need for Devarshi Bikdusha to be said, and the number 10. Great. Where is 10 coming from in the first place in either of these sources? Are we going back to the spies, or is this something else? Um, I think we're going back to, even before the spies, we're going to the Torah, uh, meaning it seems like even before the rabbinic discussion that the, the number 10 is significant. Where the rabbis get it from, I, they seem to already have it. Right. That's what I'm saying. It's like none of these verses actually say 10. Correct. Right. The only one that says 10 is the word, is the one, is Ada. Uh, so it's the, the one that referring to the Muraglim. That's the right. only one. Right? Okay. So everything is, is being linked to there. And, and yeah. it seems to be important enough that it's worth having this double linkage of verses in order to take it from that verse about the Muraglim to talk about the Varsha Bikdusha. How okay. does Toch get linked to 10? So we have is Toch linked to 10 or Kedusha? So mm-hmm. we have this verse, Vinikdashti, but Toch Bnei Israel. So that is the linkage between Kedusha and Toch. Um, oh, and, and then, then we have this verse, Adma Taila E Dahara Azot. Right. Um, and so we have, we have this language, therefore, between Toch and Eida. Um, so if we're kind of working backwards, we kind of start with Adma Taila E Dahara Azot. And then we have the Pasuk, Mi Toch So now we've got the link between Toch and Eida. And then the, like, so that's A to B. And then B to C is. And so we know that because the toch is being used, that it refers to eda, which means ten, and that's what you need in order to have kedusha. Correct. Thank cool. you for thank you for filling in the middle step for me. That it's mitoch eda. That's the key that links the two. Um, great. So the so far, this is all about minyan in the context of of, uh, of prayer. However, we also have this idea that minyan is important for other situations as well. Um, and in particular, there is a discussion in, in Talmud Bavli Sanhedrin, which talks about um, minyan, not in the context of tefillah, but in the context of kiddush Hashem, in the context of some kind of martyrdom. So if you look on page three, um, you will see there is a discussion. Um, some of you may know this discussion. This is the source of like the big three commandments of Yerek Val Yavor, the three things that one must uh, martyr oneself um, and not uh, disobey the command. Um, However, in the context of the discussion, there's another possibility brought up, and that is what matters is not the big three, or in addition to the big three, there's also, uh, what also matters is, are you performing this privately or in public? Something that is performed in public, perhaps um, it is more important that one refuse to do it even if that costs one one's life. So this then leads to a discussion, well, what counts as public? And public is 10, again. So the discussion here is, well, who, who is, what is the composition of that group of 10? So we have here in source number, th- in source here, I'm sorry, the number is on the other page. And how many people form a public collection such that a person is obligated in martyrdom because of the presence of a public collection, a parhesia? Says Rabbi Yaakov, says Rabbi Yochanan, a parhesia cannot be less than 10 people. Again, take people, not men. Obviously, we require Jews for this number. As it says, and I will be sanctified amidst B'nai Israel. Rabbi Yirmiyah asked, non-Jews and one non-Jew, what is the law? Come and learn what Rav Yana, the brother of Rav Chia, taught. It comes from the double appearance of toch. Here it is written, and I will be sanctified among, amidst toch, the children of Israel. And there it is written, separate yourself from amidst toch, this congregation, just as there all ten are Jews. Also here, all ten must be Jews. Now, this story is interesting for a couple of reasons. One is um, it, it gives us this notion that minyan, um, 
in the Talmud is, is not simply a prayer space. The other thing is that there is a suggestion here, I think, that uh, the minyan, at least for martyrdom purposes, can include women. Um, and the reason I, that I suggest that is because the, the question in the Gemara is not a question about whether a woman can count in the ten, but whether a non-Jew can count in the ten. Presumably, if we're already thinking about non-Jews being accountable in this group of ten, then it is not worth asking for these purposes um, whether a woman can be included in this group. Um, because they definitely are? Because they definitely are. Um, because, the because if the, the shorthand of, well, we need 10, has meant 10 men all along, then it could be that the, that, then the Gemara should have just asked here, well, what about nine men and one woman? But because it says nine Jews and one non-Jew, it would seem to suggest, at least for this case, at least for martyrdom purposes, um, that uh, women are included. Uh, women are allowed to be in this tent. Now, just kind of stepping back from this for a second and thinking about what this might mean, we can imagine this kind of makes sense. Um, meaning, it is possible, in a kind of very narrow reading, that what it means to have a minyan for purposes of martyrdom could be more lax than what it means to have a minyan for purposes of tefillah. Meaning, it is possible that when a person is doing some kind of action or has a question of doing some kind of action, which is, goes, against, uh, goes against Judaism, um, that we don't really care if it's men or women who are watching. Um, what really ma matters is just that they're Jews. However, in other situations of tefillah, it does matter, and it's only referring to men. You could, however, if you wanted to, read this more broadly and say, this is a, this is a proof text that every time the Gemara is talking about 10, it really means 10 men or 10 women. And this is kind of like, if you want to kind of stop the, stop the roller coaster here, like, this is a good place to get off. Um, you could say, based on this, and this is when Rabbi David Golinkin kind of gives his tshuva, that this is evidence that the Talmudic perspective on what is this ten referred to is that the Talmud already is thinking about ten men, sorry, is already thinking about minyan as being ten men and or ten women. Um, um, sorry. Yeah. Um, does it have to be ten men or ten women or ten people? So, so it can, be, it can be ten people including men and women. Okay. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. Their gender doesn't matter as long as it's ultimately ten. Right. Um, <coughs> so this is, I think, so that's one place you can go with it. Um, what we can say, even if we, don't do, even if we don't go down that road, is that the notion of minyan as being ten is sensitive to what is going on in that group. And it is possible that we need to be aware of what the purpose of this group is. If we're talking about minyan, if we're thinking about minyan in a society in which there is a difference between um, men and women as being citizens of the Jewish community, that it's possible for tefillah, you might only accept men into that group. Why? Because for a group of 10 women to come together for prayer does not represent the community in the same way as it would for a group of 10 men to come together for a prayer. Um, so that is another thing that you can kind of take out of this. Uh, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more um, soon. I would also point out so far that the discussion is not men and women. It's, it's not, or here it's not a question of some Jews and some non-Jews. It's nine Jews and one non-Jew. And that the whole tenor of this discussion Jews is, and one non -Jew. sorry, sorry, nine Jews and one non-Jew. Thank you. Um, the whole tenor of this discussion is going to be about, well, how strictly do I want to observe this, like, number exactly 10? And often when we're talking about including other people, we're talking about them including one representative of that other group, not 
lots. Um, you see that in the next source, where there is this discussion, um, we don't need to go through this, but there is this discussion which it's unclear exactly how it's resolved. It's possible that Go and Neem added their own um, resolution to it afterwards. Um, but there is some discussion about who you can add or whether you can add somebody for the 10th person. The question is like, is 10 like a, is a solid number? Or does 10 mean like approximately 10, you can kind of fiddle with it a little bit. And fiddling with it means including these liminal groups like women, like slaves, um, all around the edges. Yeah. What would it mean including them in the entity that we call a minyan? It would just mean that a minyan is ten is should be ten men, but it's okay if it's not that, and you can have extra people. But it doesn't seem to imply that they would still be at least the way that you just phrased it. I'm not right. sure if my question is clear, but meaning the minyan is still a group of men. It's just a question of how big, how close to ten it needs to be, and it would be okay to maybe like have a woman there, but she wouldn't be completing the minyan. She sure. would just be there. Right. Exactly. Okay. Um, or she would, she would help give the sense that this is a large group of people, uh -huh. and we wouldn't be so concerned about the exact number totaling up to ten, okay. um, or something near ten. So if the presence of the woman in the congregation kind of like makes it look like there's a bunch of people in the room, mm -hmm. you kind of don't care if one of those people isn't a man, okay. because if the room kind of look, looks full, um, is it maybe a way to think about it? Great. So this is the Talmud so far. So so, so far we haven't committed to this idea that minyan is ten men, um, although there. There, and there does seem to be at least one possibility that for martyrdom purposes it can include women. This changes quite radically as soon as we move into the going period. Source number four, we have a number of sources which we don't, we don't need to go through all of these now, but they all basically say um, that the minyan can include both, sorry, the minyan can only include men, only adult men, only free men. Um, this is the definition of um, of the minyan. So Sidur of Sajigon, for example, right? That's exactly the definition, which um, is still uh, basically the most widespread today. Um, there is one possibility, if you look at 8b, that Rambam suggested it's only 10 free adults. Um, again, Rabbi David Gulinkin uses this to suggest that Rambam doesn't think that, uh, Rambam thinks that women can count in Minyan. I'm not so sure about that. I think, um, I think, it's, I think it's doubtful that Rambam uh, really felt that strongly. Um, but either way, the rest of the sources seem to be pretty clear in saying that it involves 10 men. Now, where did they get this from? Um, one possibility is that this is something that was latent in the Talmud the whole time. And they're simply kind of extrapolating out or making explicit something that they understood to be clear the entire time. Second thing is understanding like all the minyanim that they see around them. And again, like we've, we've stated from the beginning, I don't think that there have been minyanim of ten women, like, or a minyanim of men and women um, commonly in practice for the past 2,000 years. Minyanim have been primarily, almost exclusively male. Um, and so they are simply looking at that and saying, well, that's the rule. Um, however, in doing this, there are also developed these new reasons, these new rationales for having it be men. And so if you look at source number nine, um, this is on page four and page five, you start to have these um, new readings of older verses that now give priority to men. So we'll see some of this. Um, Marissa, do you want to read sure. number five? Um, this requires consideration. The matter is not explicit in the Gemara, but nonetheless, it is the law. For it is written, bless in Malthiot. Malthiot. 
Kahal. Mahalo. And they, i.e. women, are not at all called a Kahal. Great. Just stop there for a second. That's like quite a statement in itself, right? First of all, he acknowledges the Gemara isn't explicit. And second of all, he says, like, women are not a Kahal. Right? Like, that's, I think that's quite a statement. I think it's actually helpful for us to think about um, that he doesn't understand the kind of gathering of women as representing a um, as rep representing a kahal, a group entity, in the same way that um, a, group, a grouping of men would. Sorry for interrupting. Okay. Um, we hold similarly with regard to prayer, in which women are obligated, but nonetheless they do not form the quorum of ten, and they, as a group on their own, do not say kaddish or kedusha. For any davar shabikdusha may not be said in a group of less than ten, since it is written, and I will be sanctified in the midst of bnei Israel and not bnei Yisrael. Right. So this is the same verse that we saw previously, but the emphasis now here is different. It's not B'nai Israel, but it's B'nai Israel to exclude B'nai Israel. Great. And Eda also applies only to males, because the spies were men. And since a Devar Shabik Dushah may not be said in a group of fewer than ten men, and the restriction on mentioning the name in Zimun in a group of fewer than ten is because this act is a Devar Shabik Dushah, women are thus excluded. And further, common sense tells us that they should not conduct Zimun with the name because they do not have the intellectual capacity to magnify and exalt the name of the Holy and Blessed One as men do, as it is written, magnify God with me. Right. So. Which is obviously talking only to men. Right. <laughs> <laughs> as a man, and therefore, like, it's got with me. Right? Isn't that... Right. I don't... Like, how does I don't understand that last part. The last part. Right. Um... So he does seem to have this sense, of the, and I think this is also important for reading uh, the entirety of the passage, that um, of course we all understand that women could not possibly um, service God in the same way that men do. Um, and that as a result, like, of course we would say that women can't participate in the same way. Um, and so this is helpful for us in understanding, like, he, he, kind of, he kind of feels it. He feels that women are not supposed to have this role. Um, and so these, these new uh, proofs that he has added here, B'nai Yisrael, B'nai Yisrael, Makhelot, these are ways of kind of firming that up, but he, he does have this sense already kind of on a basic level that women are um, not capable of providing the same service. Okay. I mean, not okay, but okay. Um, what I would, what's interesting about that is, is that this notion that there is something essential about um, women's ability to participate, notions of intellectual capacity, things like that, that doesn't seem to be the main trend in the Rishonim. Uh, Rishonim, medieval uh, rabbinic authorities. The main trend seems to be um, instead saying that on a theoretical level, there's nothing wrong with women participating in minyan. On a practical level, however, we don't think it's appropriate. Um, and that question of like what is and is not appropriate is a little bit is a little bit vague, but I think you'll see that starting the next source. So, um, sorry, I forget your name, Sarah. Yes. Okay. Do you want to read uh, the next source, number ten? Loshna, um, right? Loshna Gdolim. Ah, Loshna Gdolim, Right, 
אכול מחויבי מצוות בני ברית. Great, so, so Rabbeinu Tam, uh, one of the most important of the Tosafists, um, these are people who are approaching the, the Gemara and writing commentaries on the entirety of the Gemara um, in, in Western Europe for the most part, um, suggests that this idea of does not exclude women, sorry, does not exclude minors, he doesn't talk here about women explicitly. Um, however, um, there is a problem of insufficient honor for heaven, and because of this insufficient honor for heaven, um, on a pra- for, uh, for practical considerations, um, these groups are excluded. Now, what do you think this might mean, um, insufficient honor of heaven, as being a reason to exclude minors from a minyan? So uh, the question of honor of heaven is that we only want people who understand what's going on to be part of it. Yeah. Or just that like men are somehow better for this. So if you only have women available, fine. But if you have men available, you might as well you know, use them. Right. Uh, it's this not, is not appropriate to choose women. Sorry? Is this in reference to women? This is in reference to children. Uh, oh, so he, he, hasn't, okay. he hasn't made the jump to women. Uh, we'll see in the next source that one of his students uh, seems to read him in a way that it re- refers not to minors but also to women, but with the same issue of Yikara Dishmaya. Yeah. I don't know if this is um, a relevant angle to, to look at it from, but with regards to the question that we were thinking about before, which was um, 10 or 10 ish, I don't, I don't know if insufficient honor for heaven when there's more than one minor could imply that. With one minor, it's sufficient. So, like nine men is sufficient as a minyan. It kind of seems to potentially answer that question. Mm-hmm. That maybe ten is is like the best, and nine is sufficient honor. Right. Um, I would suggest. I th- I think it's interesting that you so you're taking this in the direction of um, they're reading it kind of in, in relation to the previous source that there is a a question about the status of these people in and of, themse- in and of themselves and like their ability to relate to God. Um, the question about the, the, the notion that it talks about honor, I think, to me, suggests that this is um, a question of appearance, um, meaning what honors God, what kind of configurations of individuals honors God, um, configurations involving 10 men. Um, and though it might be that a child is capable of, of, of giving honor, it doesn't, it doesn't look right in some way. It doesn't, it's not sufficiently honorable. Um, I think actually this is like not so impossible to understand. Meaning, like, if you are in a situation where like you are there's nine there's nine people in a room and they have a and they're waiting for one more person to you know help them join the minyan and there's a kid in the room and you're like well maybe the kid can help us so you might say well okay maybe the kid can help us form a minyan but like no one really feels good about it right it doesn't feel like a full minyan in the same way there is this sense that this is this is less than this is less than um, appropriate in some way. And I think what's going on in Rabbeinu Tam is this, this idea of less than appropriate is given this name Yikari Dishmaya. Later on, uh, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, who lived in the 18th century, I believe, um, suggests that Yikari Dishmaya is similar to Kavot HaTzibor, which is an issue we, we see elsewhere of communal, uh, of communal honor, um, which again is, can be understood as this question about oh, what, what is seemly for the congregation from a public perspective. Um, 
So just to go more quickly, because we were kind of running out of time. Source 11, um, in Source 11, it's kind of fleshed out this idea that uh, Urbanu Tom is not specifically talking about minors, but he's also talking about women. So in the first line, I found in the name of Rav Simcha, a slave or a woman can join towards the 10 required for prayer and for mentioning the name in Zima. Uh, and this, by the way, is like, if you're looking for like, uh, any source which says anything allowing women to participate in Yen, this is like the most permissive source you're going to find, that a, a slave or woman can join towards the 10. The way it's phrased suggests that they might even be able to make up more than one person, although I'm not sure we should read it like that, based on the fact that every other source we've seen seems to suggest that it's only like a question of if there's nine adult men and one um, other individual. Um, this is then expanded in the Beit Yosef, Beit Yosef is Rav Yosef Cairo, the same person who wrote the Shulchan Aruch, who says in source number 12, and it is written in the Mordechai in the name of Rav Simcha, that a slave or a woman may be included for tefillah and for grace after meals in the tent. So he acknowledges this is a possibility. And clearly this is according to the explanation of Rabbeinu Tam, who ruled like Rav Yosho ben Levi, that one slave may be included at Rav Simcha opined that this is also the law for a woman. For in every situation, a woman is equal to that of a slave. Wonderful. But since Rabbeinu Tam himself did not want to do such a thing, who can be lenient regarding it? Thus, the universal practice is not to include a woman at all. So the answer, uh, according to Beit Yosef at least, is that in theory this is how we could go. In theory, women and slaves can be part of the minyan, be part of the zimun. However, Rabbeinu Tam did not do this himself, and it was his own idea, so presumably we should care about what he decided to do. Um, and therefore, this is kind of um, an inactive um, ruling. It's a theoretical ruling. So even though it's theoretical, it's important to think about because it suggests that on a theoretical level, there's nothing wrong with women participating in minyan or slaves participating in a minyan. It's simply a question of actual practice. It's a, a kind of a secondary uh, practical consideration. Um, and this is then codified in the Shulchan Aruch, source number 13. Kaddish is said, and it is said only in the presence of 10 free adult males who have reached puberty. And the same is true of Kedusha and Baruchu, which are not said with less than 10. Great. Is it safe to say that when they're talking about slaves, they're talking about Jewish men? So yeah, I, so part of the part of this is that a slave uh, owned by a Jew is in some is in some capacity Jewish. Um, he's he's not fully non-Jew even if he entered into slavery as non-Jewish. Um, this is true not just in Judaism, by the way, in other religions as well. If you purchase a slave, that slave kind of quasi converts as a result of being owned by you. Uh, in early Islam, that was the only way to convert. Okay. Um, we don't have time to go through number 14 in detail. It's interesting. It's a question about whether uh, hermaphrodites can be part of a minyan. Um, and what kind of comes out in this is in discussing whether hermaphrodites can be part of a minyan, the Rabbeinu Tam source is kind of used to say, look, we already have this theoretical permit to allow women to participate. Hermaphrodites, who in some capacity you could say are men, should definitely be allowed to participate in minyan. Um, so this is kind of one possible practical application of this. Um, to then, beyond that, um, and move to the second way of looking at this is Rabbeinu Tam aside. We do, we, so we have this like very strong tradition in the Rishonim, and then later on in the Yacharonim, so like in the early modern times, even going towards today, do you say that it is only a theoretical, it, theoretically women should be able to participate in minyan? That, I think, is the majority of the sources. And again, if you wanted, you could stop there and say, the majority of the sources say 
that women should theoretically be able to participate in minyan. The issue is only yikara dishmaya or kavod uh, tzibur or something along those lines. And as a result, if I'm reading these sources, um, thinking about norms and forms and values, I might now say, well, that question about what is seemly and unseemly simply does not make sense in a society in which men and women are both equal participants in society, uh, where a gathering of 10 women is just as much a gathering of community as a gathering of 10 men, um, when there are regularly gatherings in public spaces of men and women. Um, and so there is no longer anything unseemly about having uh, women participate in that minyan. That, I think, is like the easier argument to say to take us from the, uh, the Rabbeinu Tam branch of sources to the situation in which we are today. Um, there is another branch which is more difficult because there is a brand which suggests that there is something essentially, there is something essential about women that allows them not to participate in minyan. And that is the Lavush in source number 15. So Lavush says, and this is a, a quite late source already, 17th century, neither a slave nor a woman nor a minor may count towards a minyan because they are not obligated in mitzvot. And some permit joining nine adults with one minor, since the minor will eventually be obligated in mitzvot. So here it's not a question about seemliness, unseemliness. It seems there is something kind of ontological, something like really like at the core of what it is to be a man, to be a woman, that means that they cannot participate in the community. Now, what does he mean when he says they're not obligated to mitzvot? Right? Women are definitely obligated to mitzvot. He means something along the lines of, but women are not obligated to mitzvot to the degree that men are. They are not obligated in the full range of mitzvot, or to be more accurate, the male non-Kohen um, range of mitzvot, because Kohanim are obligated in more mitzvot than non-Kohanim are. Um, so if this is the case, then I think you have a harder time saying that women can participate in minyan, um, because it, it's, not, it's not a question of unseemliness or something like essential about this. Um, and this is something which the Shulchan Aruch Harav uh, which is uh, written by Rav Shner Zalman of Liadi, who's one of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's, um, also picks up on it. And the bold, he says, some say that a woman, slave or minor, may not count at all, and all ten must be free male adults who have reached puberty. Um, it's not a question uh, simply about, it's a, it's a question about mitzvot, and it's not simply um, about Yikara Dishmaya. Yeah. Do we have any earlier sources for this idea of women not being obligated in mitzvot? Where is, where is this coming from? That women are not obligated to meet Yeah. So I, I assume that he's not making a claim so radical as to say women are not obligated to meet I assume he's simply, I assume he must say, he must mean something like they're not obligated in all mitzvot. Uh -huh. um, and why would, why would he include mitzvot minyan in that category? So it's, it's not, um, it's not strictly that he's saying there's a mitzvot minyan, it's simply that minyan can only be composed of people who are obligated in all mitzvot. Um, that's what a minyan means, which I would say is, is somewhat different from what we've seen so far. Uh, minyan and mitzvah have not, as of yet, been linked um, in this particular way. Now, you might say, um, one kind of response to this is to suggest, what is, it, what, what is he talking about? What is he trying to convey when he, say, when he says that women cannot be part of minyan because they're not obligated in mitzvot, or not obligated in all mitzvot? What, what, what do you think that might mean? Why do you think that might be relevant? Yeah. Maybe someone who is obligated in all means vote is part of the community and is a full citizen of, of a society. Right. So you might say that, you know, um, in the same way that, this is maybe an imperfect analogy, 
you might refer to American cities, uh, American citizens as taxpayers or voters, people who are empowered in some capacity in society as being members of a community. So too, like, to be obligated in omnis vote makes you a full member of society. So there is a way to kind of reduce this to, um, to one of the previous sources. Um, that aside, I think if you, want, if you want to kind of address the Lavouche and kind of have this be part of your tradition, uh, there is a way to do it, but it's more radical, which is to suggest that what it means to be a woman in the sense of the Lavouche is not the sense in which um, women understand themselves to be women today. I'm going to restate that a little differently. Which is to say, um, the idea of nashim, of women in the rabbinic imagination, um, that there are these individuals in society who are not men who are kind of liminal, who are um, obligated in some commandments but not all commandments, that idea um, perhaps does not have as much credence today in that women very much feel themselves to be part of society equal to men. Um, the idea that society is split up into these two groups where basically half the population feels themselves fully obligated and half the obligation feels themselves partially obligated is simply not true today. Um, and so reading that into the Levouche, we can say about the Levouche and about many other sources, if we really wanted to take it that far, that um, the Levouche's category of women simply doesn't, doesn't apply to women today. They're simply different um, women and women are not the, are not the same. Um, now, that's a pretty strong argument to make. Um, that argument can kind of be used for all of the sources we've seen tonight, if you really wanted to. I think there's a value in not using it because uh, I think like in, in our minds it kind of is more of a stretch than other arguments. Um, I think it works, but at the same time, um, it requires us to, to kind of read these sources with a stronger uh, interpretive lens than we would have to otherwise. And I think that is difficult to do. Yeah, did you have a question? I think a similar argument, but not like a, along the same, like the same vein type of argument that one could make is that maybe not only are women not the same category as the one that are that is imagined previously, but also a Jewish community is not the same category as the as the category imagined previously, and the composition of women within it is not is just a totally different animal. Great. I think, I think that's true. And I think if you wanted to find a source that would help you ground that idea, is this source uh, discussing martyrdom and that women's involvement in martyrdom. That is to say, there's already this kernel of an idea in the Talmud that in some situations, it doesn't matter what your gender is, you are an equal part of the community. And we can kind of elaborate that to say, not that that itself is a proof text, but that means that the Talmud already has this idea that you, women's status in a community really is uh, circumstance, conting circumstance contingent. And now we are in situations where Vinikdash di Betoch B'nei Israel refers not just to situations of martyrdom, that they're equivalent, but also uh, in situations of prayer as well. Um, so that in terms of like, that's kind of like the end of the formal argument. Um, I would say, kind of by way of conclusion, because um, I want you to be able to get to the next year, um, that this can kind of seem like a theoretical exercise, um, but I would like you to imagine it as not being theoretical, but actually as being very much reality. I think there's a tendency when we look at sources like this to say, this is all very nice, I'm gonna wait until I see an orthodox community that does it too. Um, because I don't trust the commitment of non-orthodox groups or something along those lines. Um, I would say for a couple of reasons that we should resist that and we should actually if we think these sources are convincing, we should actually push towards them. Um, 
One is that it is easy in retrospect to say, um, now that there's a solid community that is counting women in a minyan, I'm going to be part of that. But when that community is forming, like I'm going to wait until it until it forms. That that in a way kind of um, removes oneself from um, from uh, from this progress as it is occurring. Um, if you imagine that there is a kind of sanctity to those communities as they develop, a community that uh, understands men and women as both participating in a minyan, then you should join it. Um, and you shouldn't retroactively say, well, you know, I think that that is holy in some way. I think what they were doing is holy. I think that, you know, that's part of progressive revelation, that like this is part of, like, um, the unfolding God's message in the world. Like, if this is what you think is going on, be part of God's message in the world. Like, do that thing. Um, the other thing is to say that one of the things I think we see from all these sources very much is that there's a lot of room for interpretation. Like, what we've done tonight is a lot of interpreting, interp interpreting of texts. And some of that interpreting is not the most obvious way of reading it. Um, that interpretation, in some ways, is all theoretical unless it is enacted. And in the process of actually saying, I am going to participate in minyanim, in which men and women are counted equally, I'm going to count myself, I'm going to allow women to be counted, things along those lines, you are enacting a kind of interpretation that is egalitarian. And that until one actually participates in a minyan in that capacity, one is not, th this is kind of a, a potential method of interpretation, it's not an actual one. So in order for the sources to kind of um, be read in this egalitarian fashion, it actually requires um, activity on our part, not just thinking and talking. Um, so if there are any questions? Yeah. I was just well, not related to all, all the end, the conclusion of this, but something I just thought of right now. Um, in the Gonic sources, are, do they ever give, because I'm looking at them now, they don't ever give any reasons for their statement. So do they ever give reasons? And if not, how do you deal with them in this forms way if they don't even give you any indication why they said this? Um, I think there's a couple ways of, of dealing with that. One is to say, like I said before, that um, they, under, they are reading the Gemara as referring to only men. They understand themselves as not needing to give a reason because it's already there. They didn't have to refer to anything at all. Um, the other way is is them looking around and saying, well, what did Minyanim look like to us? And that they are just describing the reality of Minyan as they see it. Okay. And we shouldn't look at them as halakhic statements as much as Cultural. Right, in terms of arguments, right? I think this is important in terms of thinking about the form of an argument, right? Not every rabbinic statement comes equipped with a fully um, formed argument. Sometimes they're just written and you have to kind of understand where they're coming from. Okay, thank you.